There are so many things to do in the spring. We just go crazy with all those chores. And wouldn't it be nice to have a few less things to do in the spring? Well, today's guest, Scott Canning of Wave Hill in the Riverdale section of the Bronx, New York, is going to tell us some of the things that they do at Wave Hill so that they won't have so many things to do when spring comes. And that includes pruning, pruning woody plants in the fall. Stay tuned. Clem's Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Hello and welcome. My name is Ken Drews, and you're listening to Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. I'm here every week with a new show, and today we have a guest, Scott Canning of Wave Hill in the Bronx, New York. New York City and the area around New York is so rich in gardens, and a lot of people don't know that, but it's worth taking a trip to New York City just to take even a, almost a week and look at some of the gardens. There's gardens in New Jersey. There's fantastic gardens on Long Island, just about 30 miles from Manhattan, and it can take 35 minutes or two hours to get there, depending on traffic. But you're going to go at the right time of the day, so you're not going to have trouble. And right in New York City, there's the New York Botanical Garden. There's the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Oh, there's Bryant Park. There's Central Park, of course, and the Conservatory Garden. And I have to say I'm a little prejudiced, but I think the real jewel in New York City is Wave Hill. Because Wave Hill is an intimate garden. It's 28 acres, easy to see, easy to go to and relax. And the gardens are very human scale. You don't have the feeling that you're looking at institutional plantings or that you're being forced to learn anything, but there's so much to learn. There's so much for inspiration, but also there's a very doable scale. And you can see plant combinations that will inspire you to repeat at your home. And there's wonderful labels. And, of course, bring a notebook. Because there's so many things you're going to want to write down, some things you'll want to repeat in your own garden, copy, go there for inspiration, because there's so much to learn at Wave Hill and so much to learn for your own garden. And we're going to learn more from Scott Canning, the Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill, right now. My guest today is Scott Canning, Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill, the public garden in the Bronx. Hello, Scott. Good morning. Hi. It's great to speak with you and to know that you're in such a beautiful place. And before we talk about different things we might be doing now in the fall, uh, tell me a little bit about Wave Hill. Oh, I, absolutely beautiful place. I, I've um, worked at public gardens around New York City for a couple of decades, and Wave Hill was always a source of inspiration for me. And now that I'm here, I pinch myself in the mornings coming in. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful place. Its location is, is magical. It's on a bluff in the Riverdale section of the Bronx, uh, way above the Hudson River with views across to the cliffs of the New Jersey Palisades. So even if it wasn't such a fantastic garden, just the site and the views alone would be worth going to. But um, it's been landscaped uh, for more than a century and a half, so it's got great gardens and great trees, too. And great sunsets. Magnificent sunsets. (laughs) It is It is almost all about the view, but the view is also close up at Wave Hill because the gardens are spectacular. 
Yeah, and a lot of them, again, oriented to the river and the view. And in fact, most people's first experience, uh, we have a sort of an occluded parking lot, and when people break out of that parking lot, they look across what we call our Great Lawn, and in the distance is an Italian pergola, and you look over it and through it to that fantastic view and the sunset if you're lucky. So Wavehill, was it, was, was it one private estate or a couple of private estates that were joined? A couple. The, the old house, Wave Hill House, is an 1830s um, construction. This was the country then, and uh, you know people came up to get to the country by river. Um, a number of beautiful estate homes were built in the section of, of the Bronx. And uh, <clears throat> around the turn of the century, the Perkins family, which have done wonderful things for saving, for, for conservation, both in New York and New Jersey, they bought Wave Hill House and its property and the adjacent uh, property as well, joining them together. And they put Wave Hill on its current trajectory. They unified the property by putting in walks and walls, the pergola. They put in greenhouses and a rock garden and a water garden. So they were very much into gardening, and that tradition has maintained itself here in a, in a wonderful way. Well, as as much as I hate to drop names, which I really don't hate to drop names, but who are some of the luminaries who have stayed at Wave Hill? Well, Arturo Toscanini um, was here. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was here for a couple of years, as was um, uh, the Queen Mum of England. <laughs> <laughs> um, Poe was here in the Bronx also and spent some time at this house. And uh, Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain. Also. Mark Twain lived here and talked about how the winds off the river rocked the trees. He apparently loved to climb trees. He was here as a young man and, and uh, spoke about how uh, strong the winds were and how beautiful the location was and is. And this is a place that people can still come and visit and feel like they're a guest at Wave Hill as well. <laughs> That's the wonderful thing about it is the Perkins family gave this to the city of New York in 1960, but it still has the feel of a private estate. Our neighbors come with their newspaper and drag our chairs around and make themselves feel at home. It really has a sense of intimacy that's rare in New York City. Well, and it, as we're talking about it, it sounds like it is intimate, of course, and small, but I think you're about 28 acres, aren't you? That's right. That's right. About 10 of them uh, intensively cultivated, and we've got uh, some steep slopes with great walks that have been that have gone gone to second growth forest, which we've been managing, uh, removing alien plants and putting in spring ephemerals and things like that too to make it in its, in its own way special. Well, I was a little surprised in an email when we were emailing back and forth that you were just about starting to prune things, and I thought that was kind of amazing because. To me, that's something that I wouldn't do until late winter, but uh, you, you were saying that because there's so much to do, it's great to get into it and get into it early, and I guess that's something that you can do. It is something you can do. Again, contrary to you know the rules you learn early on, um, I came to this when I was managing the Cranford Rose Garden at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, 5,000 roses, and just one gardener with a few wonderful volunteers. We couldn't wait until the forsythia bloomed to prune those roses. We would never get the job done. So we would start um, with the ramblers. Um, they're the most hardy roses. They're descendants, crosses of you know our, the horrible Rosa multiflora, um, but that gives them their, their habit and their hardiness. And we found we could do prune those in November without any problem whatsoever. Um, so that is the inspiration. We started experimenting and doing <coughs> more, <coughs> excuse me, 
more of the hardiest roses and found out again, no problem. As long as they were um, had defoliated and the soil temperature was in the mid or 40s or lower, you never had any problem with plants. You know, the risk, of course, is you hear that plants will start to grow after you prune them, which is true most of the year. But with the soil temperature down and the days short, if you prune the really hardy stuff, you can really save time. Does that go for trees, too? Yeah, we've started, uh, you know, we have issues with water sprouts on magnolias and lindens and things. And again, we can do that kind of work um, starting in mid-November and work in December, January, way ahead of when people think about doing their winter pruning. And we get a good head start on it. We, with 28 acres and lots of it uh, cultivated, again, we have the same issue here. We have so much to do. And if we waited to the traditional time, we'd never get to it. And we found we have no trouble if we approach it carefully, you know, intelligently. Just, again, the same rule. Leave the little stuff alone, anything that's borderline hardy. Leave that for later when you ordinarily would prune. But the stuff that's, you know, totally hardy in your area, go to it. Well, what are the thing, some of the things that you'll be pruning? Do you, do you sort of set up a schedule for pruning? Um, it's, uh, the gardeners are assigned to different areas, and they each have their own little list of plants they know they can do. Uh, but again, on the, in the grounds at large, we do have a lot of magnolias, a lot of dogwoods, and a lot of lindens, and we find we can start cleaning those up November, December with no, no problems. Um, we find, too, we also tidy up um, some of our broadleaf evergreens and some of our needled evergreens as well, and again, we've had no trouble. Again, a little common sense is, is good. You don't want to expose um, you know, broadleaf evergreen leaves that were shaded all season to the harsh winter sun, so you have to do this uh, where they're a little bit sheltered. But carefully considering where they are and what they are, we've been able to uh, prune hollies and um, our, our junipers and all kinds of uh, needled and broadleaf plants. And then we get great use out of those in the wintertime, too, to shelter other plants. Oh, very handy. The, the clippings. Right. We have um, troughs here. Our alpine plants are in troughs. So we once they are frozen, we lay the boughs over them to keep them cold. You know, they, they don't make anything warmer putting the boughs on. They don't heat them in any way. But, you know, we have the horrible freeze-thaw cycle here. And once things are cold and we give, a, put, give them some boughs as mulch, they tend to stay frozen and much better. Things don't get heaved out of the ground and they don't freeze and thaw. So that works for us really well. So I guess you're mostly giving them shade from the sun. That's right. That's right. And just giving them a little bit of insulation when you get a warm day. If you've got those boughs on, it keeps the ground colder and keeps it from thawing for you know an extra day or two. And we tend to, in January, those cold spells, usually the warm spells, I'm sorry, usually don't last that long. So it gives us um, a good amount of protection. And when do you take those boughs and things away? Uh, we usually take those away um, at the end of the harsh weather. Here we tend to do it in um, the beginning part of March. Uh, we don't want, uh, you know, things start to warm up there anyway. The sun is really strong by March, and some things start to push their way through. And we find it's mostly for that harshest part of the season. Um, so once the ground starts to thaw, we find we can remove them. Well, I know Wave Hill has an incredible collection of, well, of everything, <laughs> but uh, deciduous hollies and viburnums. So what do you do with the deciduous shrubs? Uh, we Again, those we tend to wait for the middle of the wintertime to do. Of course, I can't resist taking a couple of branches in uh, as, as early as, as uh, mid-January off some of the uh, witch hazels and things to force inside. That's always a treat. 
Um, but the, the other things, especially if it's a decorative um, twigs, like with the dogwoods and some of our um, willow collections, we leave those, of course, um, to that time. We leave those for later because you want to enjoy that, the beautiful color of the twigs and things like that. My predecessor, Marco Polo Stefano, always planted with uh, October, with fall and winter in mind, and I, I love that about Wave Hill and continue that. So there's a lot of things we leave alone because they were planted with winter interest in mind, so we wait to do those. I'm speaking with Scott Canning, who is the Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill, the Public Garden in the Bronx, the Jewel in the Bronx, and we'll be right back. Clem Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Thank you for staying with me, and if you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Scott Canning, who is the Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill, the public garden in the Bronx, one of the most beautiful gardens in America. I can easily say that. And a place that I always go for inspiration and always find inspiration. I'm a plant geek, or maybe I should say plant lover. And 28 acres, it's a lot for a private garden, but a public garden, it's not really all that big, but there's so much at Wave Hill, and it's so beautifully arranged. And we've been talking about pruning shrubs and trees and evergreens and some surprising things because at Wave Hill they do it kind of early and do it right through the season to save time and and why not? And I like that you're recycling all those parts of the plants. If they don't come in for decorating indoors, they go onto the troughs to keep them cold. It's all great advice. Uh, anything you would like to add to that? Well, we also, you know, with some of those twigs we use as pea twigs in the spring for other things and we use them in pots during the winter time for climbers so we love to be you know, not only recycling but it's, it's wonderful to use unexpected um, things in the garden uh, in unexpected ways that's something we've always liked to do here and, and again if you keep your eyes open while you're doing your pruning who knows what you'll find out there so so that just to explain that a little bit those are so, sort of like twiggy parts of plants that you use as stakes for things to climb on that's right. Yeah, we um, sometimes they're beautiful just as is. We shape them up a little bit, put a, a point on the end, and you can put them in the ground outside for things that would flop, let them grow through. You use them like a peony ring, uh, in, in, a, in essence. It's an old English tradition, and they call them pea twigs because they put them in the garden for pea vines to twine up. So we do that both in the greenhouses and on the grounds. Everything gets recycled. That is great. Uh, at this time of year, I, I've been harvesting some some fruits from different plants and dry fruits and moist fruits, and I'm sure at Wave Hill you're doing that too. Are there some things that you're cleaning now and getting ready to store uh, for later sowing, or is there anything that you're sowing now? Uh, we are sowing a few things, and it'll, that'll pick up dramatically um, as we get to the bottom of the year in uh, December in a couple of weeks. Um, we like to do work with seed exchanges. There's a Hardy Plant Society here on the East Coast, which has a nice list of um, it is HPS, the Hardy Plant Society. We always like to donate uh, some of the things we have at Wave Hill, and then it gives us a chance to shop their list, too, in the spring. So, uh, And that needs to be done just about now, giving them what we're going to donate. So we are um, gathering and um, have been gathering through the season um, different seeds, and then we package them up and send them off. It's to our benefit and to anyone who joins that wonderful club. Can you think of a couple of examples? I'm putting you on the spot, but uh, you have such wonderful, surprising things that no one can get anywhere. 
Yeah, we do have a, a few things that um, will we'll kill two birds with one stone. Some of the things we'll be sowing soon um, in the late spring when we have a, a good crop of cool season annuals, so things like calendulas and sweet peas. Um, uh, those we put little bags on, uh, sometimes tea bags over a small um, seed pod or a paper bag over something larger with a twist tie to make sure we don't lose the seed we want. We can just let that sit in a dry place all season, and now we, we go and clean the seed from the chaff and package that up and label it um, and store it either for ourselves or share it with friends. So a number of things, um, clarkias and nemopolas, uh, we keep seed from those. We keep some seed from nasturtiums. There's a beautiful gold leaf form we have, which comes true from seed. So a, a lot of uh, seed saving throughout the season, a lot of processing that seed now. And, uh, and then soon, those cool season animals will be selling. Well, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about sweet peas, and maybe we'll get to it, but I have a question. First, on the moist fruits, you when you send them in a seed exchange, they have to be dry, don't they? Yeah, they, they, they handle a, a few things um, that are tricky that they pack in peat, and, um, and you know, some, some, they, they like to handle conventional seeds, just as you said. That's much easier for everybody. They do handle a couple of specialist specialty seeds, some amaryllis family plants where the seed has to be very fresh and can't wait till the spring. It's got to be sown in the fall or winter. But mostly, yes, conventional seed, um, just like as you'd find in in the markets or the, at nurseries. So if you have something like a, a jack-in-the-pulpit, some kind of erysema, and it's in a, a berry, or I guess it's a berry, <laughs> on a club with all that fruit, you have to wash off that fruit, I guess. Yeah, we use, uh, you know, a garden, a small garden um, strainer, and we, you know, go over to the sink and wash the pulp off and then pack that in, in damp peat and put it in a Ziploc bag and refrigerate it until it's the right time to give it its warm regimen. So that's, you know, definitely more labor-intensive, but with those kinds of plants, it's really worth it. I'm glad you have help. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Well, in England, people grow sweet peas, and they think nothing of it, and they're allegedly fragrant. I'm saying that because I, I've barely ever smelled them, sometimes on the West Coast, because uh, my attempts at sweet peas are not very good, because you, re you really need a cool place, I guess, and, and you'll be sowing those, when do you think, around January? Uh, end of December, I uh -huh. found. You know, there we, we do them. Some people sow them uh, a little later to get a head start for you know, growing them outside. But we like to, again, uh, our, we seem to go from winter to spring to summer so quickly here, and they hate the heat, as you said, that we often use them for greenhouse display. So we start them in late December and get them into flower um, in the middle of March into April. Um, and then we move, you know, as the pots come into display. We like old cultivars. Like you said, some of the new ones for, that are bred for cut flowers don't have that great fragrance. But the old varieties are still available, and they are wonderfully scented. So they fill the greenhouse with scent for us in late March and April, and then we move them out to the steps when the weather breaks and uh, the greenhouses start to get too warm. They are magnificent sweet peas, really. Uh, it, it's a big effort, and you do need a, really a cool greenhouse to do it, but if you have something like that, a cool porch that doesn't freeze, boy, can they be a treat. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I know I'm going to end up trying this again. And uh, <laughs> sometimes I get a couple of flowers and a whole lot of yellow foliage, usually, because I just don't have the right conditions, certainly the, not the cool, which they need. What do you think? They need, like, 50 degrees at night? 
Yeah, 55, you know, 60 or below. Um, it, when you get into the 60s, it becomes a problem. They stretch, and they really don't like that. But, you know, um, cool temperatures and sweet, limey soil. Lots of limestone in the soil is really makes quite a difference, mm. too. Otherwise, they languish and get chlorotic. So if you're using one of these peat-based mixes, it's really important to add some limestone. Well, you're talking about things that are happening in the winter and things that are happening in March, and I want to encourage people to go to Wave Hill, maybe when they think it isn't the time to go, because there are beautiful things to see in the greenhouses. And one of your specialties, and certainly one of your passions, are South African bulbs. And we know so little about South African bulbs. And maybe you could well, I guess amaryllis are South African bulbs. So. Well, it's- yeah, some of them. Most of the amaryllis that we call amaryllis are from South America. They're mm-hmm. the true amaryllis, the naked ladies out in California. They are from South Africa. But um, the South African bulbs, because they're, they um, are from a climate like California, are they're winter growing. They're dormant because of both the Cape provinces, South Africa, and Cal- like California, there's no rain from spring until fall. So all those bulbs are dormant, which works for us. We want to have a display under glass in the winter when we're all desperate for color. And thankfully, these things start growing in uh, the fall when the temperatures get cool and the rain comes. And uh, it's not forcing. It's growing them on their normal cycle. Hmm. And then they start to bloom as early as December, but they fill the greenhouses in January and February when we're all starved. So if someone wanted to see what these things are like, um, Wave Hill is a great place to see them. And they're catching on. Um, I know Brent and Becky's bulbs is now carrying some lacanelias. There's not common names for a lot of these things yet, but lacanelias um, that are bred for the cut flower trade and available through Brent and Becky, and they're pretty easy to force. Um, so if, if someone wanted to experiment with some of these, that might be one of the easiest things to start. And um, they're they're wonderful because a number of them are fragrant. They're very unusual and, like you said, uncommon and unknown, but they give such color and scent in January and February for us. And that's something, well, you did say force, but actually, in a way, you're not forcing them. <laughs> you're just right. giving them water. Yeah. yeah, you're not, you know, like the hardy bulbs where you do have to refrigerate them and give them a cold treatment. These, we just plant pot up and leave in the cool greenhouse. That's, you know, 50s at night, 60s in the daytime is just what they want. And uh, just how they start growing the native bulbs of California and South Africa. And the, the annuals, too. We like to grow annuals from the same places again because they they tend to work it's not difficult because they're winter growing by nature and it's so colorful it's it's impossible to describe how beautiful the display is in the greenhouses uh, in the winter at wave hill and i encourage everyone to visit and especially in march and then go at least once a month (laughs) every single month (laughs) there's plenty to see and scott i want to thank you so much for being our guest today and uh, sharing some good ideas and uh, we'll see you at Wave Hill. Happy to be with you, Ken. Thanks so much. Thank you. There really is a lot to see at Wave Hill and all of the public gardens in the New York area, even in the off seasons, if there is such a thing. And maybe that's a great time to go because who wouldn't want more interest in their gardens in the fall and the winter and the late winter and very early spring And winter interest is something that Wave Hill has always paid a lot of attention to. And there's some shrubby willows and dogwood, twig dogwoods that have incredible colors, red and yellow and chartreuse and flaming orange. And those plants are not cut back in the fall. They're cut back in the late winter or spring, so they push new growth 
because fall is what we grow them for. We grow them for that colorful winter interest. And that's why we grow a lot of the grasses, too. I have to laugh when I see some people, and there's someone near me in, in New Jersey who takes a chainsaw to all the ornamental grasses, tidies them up by cutting them to about six inches tall in the fall. And those people just don't seem to realize that we're growing those ornamental grasses for their winter interests, for the way they look after the killing frost when they turn tan and buff and beige and brown and they're standing up with their feathery seed heads, especially if they're not invasive types. We like the ones that are not invasive, and there are plenty from which to choose. A lot of North American natives, a lot of plants, trees, grasses that are native to your area. And at winter's end, the hamamelis, the witch hazels, are blooming, and Wavehill has a wonderful collection. Some of them are so fragrant. There's some that I really want to get my hands on. But that's another story, and another story for another day. We should do a whole show on, on the witch hazels, and we will. But I hope you'll join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt. And I hope to have another guest then, too. I think we are having a guest. So I'll see you next week. And please visit the website, kendrewsrealdirt.com. And uh, see you next week. <laughs>